History of the Abduction of William Morgan and the Anti-Masonic Excitement of 1826 to 1830, Part 3. Political Prescription of Masons. As soon as the Anti-Masonic Party had gained the ascendancy in western New York and elected the town and county officers, a general prescription of all who belonged to the Masonic Order, who would not renounce their adhesion to it, were stricken from the jury list and were allowed no rights which anti-Masons were bound to respect. The anti-Masonic partisans affected so firmly to believe that Morgan was murdered that any man who dared to express any doubt on the subject was looked upon as dishonest. As Mason's integrity, no matter how well it may have been established, was now questions. It was enough, as some of the leaders asserted, that they knew the whole fraternity were accessory to that murder, and there were fanatics enough to believe them, quote, when there was presented to them a blank deposition stating that some renegade said so. The question was in their view settled, although the man who may have pretended to say so was admitted to be an infamous scoundrel who would not be credited in a court of justice, unquote. Hundreds of Masons now renounced their further adhesion to the institution and were immediately received into the open ranks of the anti-Masonic party, and many of them rewarded with offices. Those who still maintain their faith in the institution ceased to make any further efforts to justify the institution. They still claimed that they would not believe that Morgan was murdered by the Masons until evidence of the fact was produced, that an outrage was committed upon his person in his abduction, an outrage no less against the principles of masonry, masonry than against the laws of the land they were free to admit, as well as to censure, and hoped and trusted that those who engage in it would be made to suffer the punishment due to their crimes. But they said they never would consent to see the innocent suffer for the misdeeds of the guilty. Suspension of Masonic Lodges in this state of affairs and the high excitement in the public mind, it was deemed best by the leading Masons of Western New York and elsewhere to suspend all work or meetings in Masonic bodies where the excitement prevailed. These suggestions were very generally complied with, and a majority of the lodges and chapters surrendered their charters, jewels, furniture, and regalia to the grand bodies from which their charters had been granted. There were some, however, who did not deem it necessary to do so, under the prophetic belief that the persecution of their order would be only temporary, and in a few years Masonry would again become the respectable and leading benevolent society it had been. They, however, suspended all work, and if they held meetings, they were as secret from the public eye as their own inner ceremonies. A lodge and chapter in Canadagua both refused to surrender their charters, but locked up their hall in which their meetings had been held, and an incendiary fire burned the building and all its contents in a short time afterwards. In Rochester, the lodge, chapter, and commandery also declined for a long time to surrender their organizations, secretly met and held their meetings, but were finally compelled to yield to the clamor of the mob. In 1829, they returned their charters, and masonry seized in that city also for some years. In Batavia, Lockport, Leroy, and nearly all the prominent villages, the order yielded, yielded upon the first demand. An organization of odd fellowship, which at this time was attracting some attention, also met with a like opposition and condemnation from the fanatical zeal of the hour. It was declared that odd fellowship was but another form of masonry, equally pernicious, equally abhorrent and abominable, and must be exterminated and driven from the land. This retarded the growth of that institution for a number of years, but on its revival, it did not meet with that inveterate opposition which had been exercised against Freemasonry. A chapter on politics. Early in the year 1827, as before referred to, certain politicians went vigorously to work and organized a powerful political party 
ostensibly founded on the opposition to the institution of Freemasonry, but including opposition to all other secret societies. It had its birth at the convention at Lewiston in March 1827 and soon grew to a formidable power. The other political parties in New York were the old Republican or Democratic Party and the old Federal Party, which had supported and elected DeWitt Clinton governor for a number of terms. Western New York had always been much attached to the Federal Party, the inhabitants being almost wholly New Englanders and their descendants. But although Clinton never claimed to be a Federalist, yet he had been supported by that party against Madison in 1812 for president, and owing to his popularity as projector of the Erie Canal, they could always succeed in electing him governor of the state against any regular candidate of the Republican Party, which they could not do by running an out-and-out Federalist, as the eastern counties were strongly Republican. This party that supported Clinton had been yelept clingtails by their opponents, who retorted by calling the regular Republicans bucktails. But the Clintonians about this time had adopted the name of National Republicans. The organizers and leaders of the anti-Masonic party were mainly old Federalists and had supported Clinton. Clinton was a Mason of a high degree and was at the time Grand High Priest of the Royal Arch Chapter of the state, which of course threw him out of the pale of the new synagogue. The candidates before the people for president were John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, the former supported by the National Republicans or Federalists, and the latter by the Democrats or Old Line Republicans. In the first election after the organization in November 1827, Genesee and a few other counties were carried on pure anti-Masonic tickets, and a number of anti-Masons were elected to the state assembly. On the 11th of February 1828, Governor Clinton suddenly died at the executive mansion in Albany by a stroke of paralysis. It is said that he had previous to his death declared in favor of Jackson against Adams, and if he had lived, would have been again elected governor on the Democratic ticket, and then have received an appointment in General Jackson's cabinet. His death, therefore, was supposed to have had a better influence in augmenting the anti-Masonic ranks than if he had lived. In 1828, the anti-Masons nominated Francis Granger for governor, but he declined and accepted the nomination for lieutenant governor on the national ticket. He did all he could to induce the antis to drop their state ticket, but a portion persisted and voted for Solomon Southwick. In most of the western counties, the antis and nationals had large majorities, but were beaten in the state by Martin Van Buren for governor and Enos T. Throop for lieutenant governor, the Jackson candidates. In 1829 and 1830, the anti-Masonic party had reached the acme, its acme of power, was only beaten in state by the friends of Henry Clay, many of whom voted for Throop, the administration candidate for governor. In 1829, the political anti-Masonic party, having captured all Western New York, now sighed like Alexander the Great for more worlds to conquer. So they went into the missionary business. Thurlow Weed was sent to Vermont, where he found a congenial soil, and by a coup d'etat, like St. Patrick with the clover leaf, he was eminently successful. Vermont was the only state carried by the anti-Masonic party, and as long as the party had a distinctive character, it was reliable. Not an officer could be elected in the state for a number of years who was not an out-and-out member of that party. Whittlesley made a raid on Pennsylvania with the aid of the late Thaddeus Stevens and other ambitious politicians made some commotion in the politics of the old Keystone State. A state convention was held in Harrisburg, and Joseph Rittner, a staid old Dutchman of Washington County, 
nominated for governor, who received quite a respectable vote at the ensuing fall election. Stevens succeeded in fanning the flame to keep the party alive for several years, long after the party was dead and buried in New York. And in 1835, by a division in the Democratic Party, running two candidates, succeeded in electing the old Dutchman governor. Rittner was an original in his way, and many anecdotes are told of him, one of which, if not true, is at least worth repeating. He is represented as a man of some mind, but rather illiterate and without much education. It was reported that he consulted Stevens upon every occasion when any question came before him for action by virtue of his office. The state had undertaken the building of several railroads, and having finished a portion of the main central route, was operating it with horse cars. And a bill passed the legislature to purchase 10 locomotives to put on the line. But when it was presented to the governor, Stevens happened to be absent from Harrisburg, and the governor had to decide for himself. He was not much in favor of modern innovations, and was therefore opposed to steam power, succeeding the ancient mode by propelling machinery by horses and cattle. He therefore unadvisedly vetoed the bill. Everybody was astonished as railroads had become very popular, and this purchase of locomotives was considered a necessity, the contract having already been made by the Board of Public Works, of which Stevens was a member. The latter therefore hurried back to Harrisburg and took the governor to task and told him he had ruined his political standing in the party. The old governor saw his mistake, but unwilling to own it, devised a plan to remedy it. He therefore said to Mr. Stevens, Quote, I tells you what to do, Mr. Stevens. The bill which I vetoes called for 10 smoke wagons. You go get another bill passed and make him 11. Then I signs him, unquote. Stevens did as suggested and the bill became a law. He was found the line needed just 11 locomotives to properly equip it. Jonathan Childs went to Massachusetts and was very successful in making anti-Masons, but very little success in the way of turning manufacturers and money grabbers from their devotion to Henry Clay, who was a Mason, and then the prospective candidate for president against Jackson. Clay was the father of the protective tariff system, and the Yankees were never known to let politics or religion interfere with their proverbial acquisitiveness for making money. John Quincy Adams, having retired from the presidency on the 4th of March, 1829, returned to his ancestral domain at Quincy in that state and was still in the vigor of life and all potent in the politics of Massachusetts. It had already been observed that during the canvass of 1828, he had written a letter to the Anti-Masonic Committee in New York, which made him a pretty good friend of the cause. He was very bitter on the Masonic institution and ready to go all length to exterminate the order but he was under too many obligations to his late Secretary of State to desert him in the prospective contest to defeat his old political enemy, General Jackson. Thus, while he denounced Masonry and Masons, he placed himself in the inconsistent position of supporting Mr. Clay, a Mason, who had been Grand Master of Kentucky for the highest office in the government. Political anti-Masonry therefore fell stillborn in Massachusetts. Yet there were, in 1829, four newspapers in the city of Boston alone, almost exclusively advocating the cause. In Rhode Island and other New England states, except Vermont, the same causes and the popularity of Mr. Adams prevented the party from making any sensible inroads into the two old established political organizations. The party spread also into one quarter of Ohio. On the reserve in the northeastern part of the state and the counties bordering on Pennsylvania, the party carried all before it, but in the southern and western part of the state, it never got a foothold. And after the election of 1832, it declined as rapidly as in New York and elsewhere. In September 1830, 
an anti-Masonic national convention was held at Philadelphia, over which Francis Granger presided, and William H. Seward of New York and Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania were two of the leading spirits. Weed does not seem to have been present, as his name does not appear in the printed proceedings. It was Seward's first starting point in political life. He was elected a member of the New York Senate at the election in November following. The convention was composed of about 100 delegates from Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and one delegate from the then territory of Michigan. The convention discussed many points in regard to what the members designated as the iniquities of Freemasonry, rehashed all the stale anathemas that had been hurled against the institution in western New York, and with appropriate resolves adjourned to meet again in September 1831 at Baltimore to nominate candidates for president and vice president. But anti-Masonry began about this time to wane, and the excitement seemed to have expended itself. However, at the appointed time, a national convention was held at Baltimore, and William Wirt of Maryland was nominated for president, and Amos Elmaker of Pennsylvania for vice president for the coming election of 1832. At this election, this ticket only received seven electoral votes, the state of Vermont. Mr. Wirt was one of the ablest statesmen and most learned jurists ever produced in this country. He was attorney general during the administration of James Monroe, also a part of the succeeding administration of John Quincy Adams, and was acknowledged one of the most profound counselors in legal matters in the country. But anti-Masonry ended his career politically. General Jackson, while president and speaking of the anti-Masonic excitement, remarked that it had been of a great benefit to the nation as it had killed off two of the worst and most dangerous demagogues in the country, William Wirt and Francis Granger. He was right as to the first, but the latter came to the front again for a short time in 1841 by General Harrison appointing him postmaster general, but he only held the position a short time, as after the death of Harrison, President Tyler reorganized his cabinet and Granger retired, and never afterwards was heard of in public affairs. In New York in 1832, the Clay men and anti-Masons united on a single electoral ticket, although ostensibly supporting different candidates for president. The coalition was brought about by Weed and Seward. They went to Washington and attended a famous caucus of all the opponents of General Jackson, and there, quote, sold out, unquote, the anti-Masonic Party of New York to the friends of Henry Clay. It was reported that Weed received a $5,000 for the support of his paper, and if possible, to throw the electoral vote of the great state of New York for the Kentucky statesman. The violent anti-Masonic partisans did not readily agree to this arrangement and denounced Weed in unmeasured terms. But Weed's tact was equal to the emergency, and after several consultations among the leaders, it was agreed that the anti-Masonic candidate for governor, Francis Granger, should receive the support of all the Clay men, and the anti-Masons should support the Clay electoral ticket, which, if elected, should cast its votes for either candidate for president that would, by so doing, defeat Jackson. The same arrangement was made in Pennsylvania, but in Vermont, nothing but a Simon Pure Wirt ticket was available. In Ohio and other states, the anti-Masons generally supported the Clay electoral ticket as against General Jackson. Weed's arrangements failed as Jackson carried both New York and Pennsylvania by large majorities. This virtually ended the anti-Mason party in New York, which the members naturally gravitated to the Whig party, which was formed soon after. At the election of New York in New York in 1832, the Democratic or Jackson candidate for governor was the late William L. Marcy, who subsequently occupied a seat in the cabinets of two national administrations, those of Mr. Polk and General Pierce. During the excitement about Morgan, Marcy was one of the judges of the Supreme Court, 
and an act having passed the legislature organizing a special circuit to try some of the Morgan conspirators, Judge Marcy was appointed to hold one of these courts at Lockport in June 1830. The trials were long and tedious, but Judge Marcy presided with patience and conducted them with dignity and satisfaction to all parties. He was also at the time of his nomination a senator for the state of New York in the National Congress and very popular throughout the state. This popularity, it was feared by the anti-Masonic leaders, would surely elect him unless they could get up some official act of his or something derogatory to his character that would turn the tide of popularity against him. After searching through his official record, nothing could be found at fault, and his private life was so exemplary that nothing in that direction could be thought of. But Thurlow Weed made a discovery. By the law organizing the special circuits before mentioned, the judge was to have an extra allowance for his necessary traveling and other expenses while holding these courts to be audited and allowed by the comptroller and paid out of the state treasury. Weed, in examining Judge Marcy's bill of expenses for holding the special circuit at Lockport, which was filed in the two in the comptroller's office as a voucher, discovered this item, quote, to paid for mending my pantaloons 50, unquote. Thus it was discovered that Judge Marcy had actually drawn from the people's treasury the sum of half a dollar for repairing his own old worn-out clothing. Weed's paper, therefore, was lively next issue. It proclaimed the fact in great double picka sensation headlines, such as no paper at that time had ever indulged in, and made the welkin ring with the enormous robbery the great state of New York had endured by this man who now asked the suffrages of the people as their chief magistrate. The anti-Masonic papers throughout the state caught up the refrain, and nothing for a time was heard but Marcy's breeches. Cuts representing a pair of pantaloons with a large patch, sometimes on the knee, and at others on the seat with the figures 50 cents, were kept standing at the head of their columns, and long editorials with any amount of twaddle about the robbery Marcy had been guilty of. Handbills were also posted up from Lake Erie to the most eastern point of Long Island, with a much larger engraving of the garment, sometimes the patch represented in red ink, to draw particular attention to the money unlawfully drawn from the treasury. But the affair had its sequel. It appears that Judge Marcy was very methodical in all his habits and never paid out the smallest sum of money without making a record of it in his notebook. It was said that his memorandums showed frequent items of one cent when he had paid that sum for some trifling article or given a boy for some small service. While at Lockport, his private memorandum was kept in the same notebook with his official expenses to be paid by the state, but on different pages. And when he paid the tailor for sewing a few buttons on his pantaloons and making other repairs, he accidentally noted it down on the page in which he kept his public expenses. On his return to Albany, he called at the comptroller's office to get his account audited and handed to a clerk his notebook to copy his bill in a proper form, as was the custom in the office. Thus it was that the private charge of 50 cents for mending his own pantaloons was paid for by the state, he overlooking it, as well as the auditing officer, who probably did not particularly examine each item, as he might in other cases where he was not so well acquainted with the accuracy of the claimant. When this became understood, the administration papers were not slow in putting the matter in the most favorable light before the people, and the reaction resulted greatly in his favor. His careful and methodical course of transacting all business, both public and private, became known to the people, and it made him thousands of votes that otherwise he would not have received, and he was elected by a large majority. Weed nor any of the anti-Masonic papers ever mentioned the 50-cent steal after the election, notwithstanding he was three times afterwards a candidate and opposed by them for the same office, 
but his friends were very fond of referring to it at every canvas. At each successive election, the Democrats almost universally declared for Marcy's breaches for governor up to 1838, when the breaches began to lose its talismanic power and Marcy was defeated by William Seward. Marcy's breaches, breaches then passed into history. The aggregate anti-Masonic vote at the fall election in 1827 was about 14,000. This was before the party was fully organized and was local in the western counties, only a few having nominated tickets. In 1828, Granger, who was nominated by an anti-Masonic state convention, declined to be a candidate on the ticket, but accepted the National Republican nomination for lieutenant governor. Whedon, most of the leaders, approved of this course and advised the members of the party to support the national ticket thus formed and thereby defeat Jackson candidate Van Buren. But the rank and file would not consent, and Solomon Southwick, having announced himself a Simon Pure anti-Masonic candidate for governor, received 33,000 votes. Van Buren had a bloody plurality of 23,000 votes over the national candidate and had the anti-Masons all voted for the latter, he and Granger would have been elected. All anti-Masons all support, the anti-Masons all supported John Quincy Adams for president as well as the nationals. But at that time, the presidential electoral college was elected by districts instead of by general ticket as in 1832. And for all time subsequently, and Jackson's electors were chosen in 20 districts and Adams carried but 16. Adams, previous to the election, having been interrogated by the anti-Masonic committee as to his views of Masonry, replied that, quote, he was not and never had been a Mason, unquote, which secured him the support of every member of that party, but lost him perhaps some votes among the Masons who were Federalists and who thought a president of the United States descended from his proper dignity to answer so insignificant and unimportant a question. Jackson was a Mason, and he had been the Grand Master of Tennessee. In 1829, the anti-Masons carried all the counties west of Cayuga Lake, except Steuben, by large majorities, and also Washington and Rensselaer, and some other counties in the eastern section of the state, whose people were mostly New Englanders and always heretofore had given majorities for the federal party. The aggregate vote of the party this year was over 75,000. In 1830, a governor's election was to take place, and the party put forth its whole strength to carry the state. The state convention nominated Francis Granger, and the National Republicans abstained from running any ticket, and it was supposed that Granger would receive the combined votes of both parties, with the probabilities of a certain election. The Jackson or Democratic Party nominated Governor Throop, who had been the acting governor for the past two years for governor, and the contest was a spirited one. A portion of the Nationals, however, refused to support Granger, and he was defeated. The anti-Masonic vote this year was 123,000 the heaviest they ever pulled in the state. This history would be incomplete without some reference to the judicial proceedings which transpired, growing out of the Morgan abduction and supposed murder, the efforts made by the anti-Masonic committee to judicially prove that he was executed by the requirements of Masonic obligations, etc. But it will be readily seen that only a mere sketch of some of the leading cases can be given. Otherwise, it would be equal to making up a volume of law cases or reports of a very uninteresting character. Mr. Seward, in a speech before the Philadelphia Anti-Masonic National Convention in September 1830, said that the, quote, the abduction and murder of Morgan had been participated in by at least 100 Masons, unquote. But Weed only claimed that 52 were directly or indirectly concerned, and that at the time of the crime was committed, knew anything about it. In his journal in 1830, he gave the names of these and candidly admitted 
that there was no legal evidence against some of them. There were perhaps over 100 indictments presented, but upon most of them, no trials were had. Others were found not guilty and six only convicted who were sentenced to short terms of imprisonment in the county jails. The anti-Masonic committee before mentioned was was the instigator of the proceedings who deemed it necessary to keep these trials before the public that the excitement may not lose its interest. They entirely failed to prove that any murder had been committed and consequently no one was indicted except for conspiracy or participating in the abduction. The nearest they ever came to proving a murder was by one, quote, Edward Giddings. At the time Morgan was taken to, to Niagara, the fort was in charge of Giddings who had been a sergeant in the U.S. Army and now in the employ of the government as light housekeeper at the mouth of the river. He was a Mason, and at the first meeting of the Leroy Seceders, appeared there as a repentant criminal and confessed that he received Morgan in the fort and locked him up in the magazine, that after a few days, a committee of Masons with himself delivered over the prisoner to the Canada Masons, and he was taken over the river and there murdered. Thus, even if any credit could be given to this confessed ruffian statement, the crime was committed without the jurisdiction of New York and of the United States. There are many persons now living who have seen Giddings' almanac, which contained his horrible confession, illustrated with frightful woodcuts of scenes in the Morgan tragedy and other Masonic deviltry. If we take his testimony, he was a self-convicted murderer. He said he knew not whether Morgan had any water or food, during his confinement for days, and candidly admitted that the men in connection with him who had the custody of Morgan were in favor of his release, and he would not he would have been released if he, Giddings, had consented to it. When he first made this confession and issued his almanac, the anti-Masons adopted him as a valuable acquisition to their party, but Weed and the more sagacious ones soon discovered that he had overdone the matter, that he would prove a whited sepulcher to their political aspirations. He was not the witness they wanted to prove the murder of Morgan. Upon going into court as a witness, counsel objected to his testimony, and the court sustained the objection. An appeal was taken to the Supreme Court of the state, where the decision of the court was below was affirmed. His rejection as a witness in the court was not on the ground of his being an accomplice in the crime, but under the common rule law rule as well as the statute of New York at that period, which excluded a witness in court who had avowed atheistical doctrine and a disbelief in divine revelation. It was proved in court and undenied by the attorney for the prosecution that Giddings was a notorious skeptic. It was upon this point that the courts excluded him from the witness stand. The rule has since been modified in New York, as well as, as most, if not all the states, by the abrogation of the common law. And a witness is not now excluded for his belief or unbelief in the divine providence or his denial of revelation from God to man. But at that time, it was in full force, and even anti-Masons admitted that Giddings was properly excluded from testifying. In fact, no candid man believed a word of his story, and he soon sank out of public sight. John C. Spencer. This distinguished, distinguished counselor, at the time the first indictments were presented, was a senator in the New York legislature from the Ontario district and attending to his official duties at Albany. Cheesebro, Sawyer, and Lawson immediately sent for him and engaged him as their counsel and attorney in the forthcoming trial. He came home and accepted the trust, and they told him all they knew about the matter under seal of the well-known rule of attorney and client. Exactly what they confessed, of course, the public never knew, but these men afterwards claimed that he most shamefully violated 
The trust reposed in him as counsel, which should have consigned him dishonorable infamy in the profession. After he had obtained their confession, he advised them to plead guilty to the indictment, which they did. As soon as his clients were sentenced, Spencer returned to Albany, where he procured the passage of an act of the legislature authorizing the appointment of a special attorney to prosecute the abductors and murderers of Morgan, representing to the governor that he had obtained a full knowledge of all concerned in the Morgan affair and asked the position for himself. Governor Van Buren hesitated in appointing him, but after offering it to several others who declined to accept, Spencer succeeded in getting himself appointed, whereupon he immediately commenced a rigid and vindictive prosecution of all who were in any manner suspected of any participation in the affair. Before he left Albany, he exhibited to the governor the following alphabetical list of names whom he proposed to prosecute, among whom he claimed were the murderers. Quote, Adams, Allen, Bruce, Brown, Butler, Barton, Coe, Chipperfield, Cheesebro, Cummins, Darrow, Dean, Daniels, Follett's Fox, French, Farwell, Ganson, Gillis, Goodwill, Haskins, Haywood, Howard, Hubbard, Hurlbut, Jewett, Jewett, John, King, Kingsley, Ketchum, Lawson, Lakey, Mathers, McDonald, McBride, Molyneux, Platt, Parkhurst, Robert, Sawyer, Smith, Shepard, Seymour, Seaver, Sheldon, Turner, Thompson, Whitney, Wright, Wilson, Walbridge, and Wilcox. Some of these men were not Masons and others were as equally astonished when they learned that Spencer was about to institute proceedings against them for murder and kidnapping. Three of them had already been tried and were serving out their terms of imprisonment. They were not only astonished, but their indignation knew no bounds and the infamy of the man who had so basely betrayed them. Many libel suits grew out of the publication of the list, which were terminated by either an apology or by an anti-Masonic jury failing to convict or awarding damages. Spencer, however, procured indictments against the major part of these men and others whom he afterwards suspected and marked out as proper victims for the prison house or the gallows and a high carnival of anti-Masonic trials soon was in progress. The terrible persecutions and bitter animosity against the Masonry incited and aided him in his arbitrary and vindictive zeal to try some of the most respectable and valuable citizens of Western New York, many of whom he knew he well knew were guilty of no crime, but for political purpose, he and the anti-Masonic leaders forced them to hear the obloquy of crime on their good name and the harassing expense and annoyance of a public trial. With all their active efforts, they could find no evidence to convict of murder or even to prove in the most remote degree that Morgan had been murdered. Yet the political leaders deemed it necessary and they cared not who suffered, nor had they the scruples about the means to accomplish it. An old man by the name of Adams, who had resided in Niagara County and was one whom it was suspected knew something about the disappearance of Morgan, was indicted upon what evidence it never was never known, as the special attorney never brought on his trial. Before he was indicted, he removed to Vermont, and Thurlow Weed was sent after him and brought him back to Niagara County, where he was locked up in jail. He was taken out on two occasions to testify at the trials of the other parties at which Spencer contended Adams could, if he would, convict somebody of murder. But Adams, under oath, solemnly deposed. In both cases, he knew nothing about the affair. But Spencer determined to make a proper witness of this old man and get him to swear as he wanted him to do. He approached him in various ways with offers to quash his indictment and with money considerations to become a willing witness. 
When these failed, he wrote to Governor Throop, asking the governor to renew the reward of 2000 offered by Governor Clinton to anyone who would give evidence to convict a murderer or murderers, stating that Adams had, quote, had heretofore, heretofore refused to disclose, but as he was poor and frightened at his own incarceration, I am sure Adams, by the aid of an old friend of his, could be induced to give such testimony that was now needed. Otherwise, without his testimony, we shall never be able to establish ju judicially the fact of Morgan's death, unquote. Governor Throop, very properly, refused to comply with any such request and wrote sharply to Spencer that he thought of a prosecuting officer's attempt to bribe a witness to swear away the life or lives of others when that proposed witness had twice positively sworn he knew nothing about the affair and his contrary testimony would now only prove himself a perjurer. But Spencer was determined to find a witness that would prove the murder and made application to one who had not tied up his credibility by any other oath or affirmation. A lawyer by the name of Simeon B. Jewett, residing at Clarkson on the Ridge Road, over which the Morgan carriage had passed on its way to Niagara, was arraigned on two separate indictments for conspiracy and abduction of William Morgan. The only connection he appears to have had in the transaction was that when the carriage containing Morgan had passed through Clarkson, he assisted in procuring a change of horses. He was on bail awaiting the sitting of the court to try him when Spencer sent for him to come to Canandaigua. Jewett immediately complied with the request, and Spencer proposed to him if he would agree to give certain testimony to convict certain parties for something more than abduction, he would enter a null, pros, null prosecution on one indictment against him, and the other he would so alter the record that the court could not fail to dismiss it on motion for its defectiveness. Jewett, a cunning lawyer, at once saw his way out of a very disagreeable and perplexing affair of being tried by an anti-Masonic jury, which was sure to convict whether the charge was proven or not. He therefore consented to the compact, and when the court convened, Spencer entered a null prosecution on one of the indictments and had mutilated the other as agreed, which the court dismissed. But when the special attorney called upon Jewett to testify as proposed, the witness swore to a directly opposite statement of facts which upset the attorney's calculations and made him a terrible wrath. But he dare not say a word in open court, as he would then be exposing his own shame. But outside meeting Jewett, he upbraided him roundly for violating the contract and threatened to procure other indictments against him. Jewett told him, however, he had better go slow, for if he attempted to trouble him further, he would expose the whole transaction and get him indicted for forgery and mutilating the court records. Spencer quailed and never mentioned Jewett again while he was special attorney. Spencer's next attempt to prove a murder was to tamper with another prisoner who was serving out a two years and four months sentence in the Canandaigua jail. This prisoner was Eli Bruce. This attempt also failing, he appears to have thereafter abandoned this mode of making the right kind of witnesses. Spencer soon after this resigned his office and Victory Birdseye was appointed in his place. Birdseye was far less vindictive and in most respects fair and impartial and the defendants tried afterwards had no cause to complain of any unfairness on the part of the special attorney. The anti-Masons elected Spencer to the lower house of the legislature in 1830 but on the decline of that party he declined with it and pursued a very retired life up to 1842 when President Tyler appointed him Secretary of War on the disruption 
disruption of the Harrison cabinet. It was while he was Secretary of War that some, the summer's tragedy took place, in which his son was hung at the yard arm of a war vessel for mutiny. Captain McKenzie gave as his reasons for not putting the young man in irons and bringing him home for trial that his father's influence as a cabinet officer he feared would prevent the proper punishment of the mutineer. Spencer resigned his position in the cabinet and retired to private life and died a few years later. Cheesebro, Sawyer, Lawson, and Dr. Foster. At the first meeting of the grand jury after the Morgan Hajira from Canadaigua, Cheesebro, Sawyer, and Lawson and Dr. Foster were formally indicted for wickedly and maliciously kidnapping and forcibly taking William Morgan against his will or consent out of the limits of Ontario County against the peace and dignity of the people of the state of New York. The first three were arrested and give bail, but the last could not be found, and as before stated, never was found. Cheesebro, Sawyer, and Lawson employed John C. Spencer for their counsel, and upon his advice, the three pled guilty on being arranged, and the court sentenced them to one year's imprisonment each in the county jail. They served out their term of imprisonment without a murmur, and on being released, assumed their former business, and lived and died highly respected in the community where they were known. Mr. Cheesebro, during the administration of President Pierce, was appointed postmaster at Canandaigua, which office he held until 1860 or 1861, satisfactorily to the people and the government. He was the father of the late celebrated authoress, Miss Caroline A. Cheesebro. The version of these, of these men was that by the request of other parties, they had assisted in getting Morgan from Batavia, and also in taking him to Niagara on his way to Canada, where they understood he desired to go and get away from Miller and his associates. And with the discrepancy in their statement and with other witnesses as to the willingness of Morgan to enter the carriage near the jail, their truthfulness was never doubted by their friends and neighbors. As long as the excitement lasted, they maintained a remarkable reticence about the affair. But years afterwards, when the excitement had ceased, they made no hesitation in giving the above explanation to all who sought it. Eli Bruce. This individual at the time of the abduction of Morgan was sheriff of Niagara County. He admitted that he met the carriage with Morgan at a point three miles north of Lockport and accompanied it to Lewistown and from thence to Youngstown and was present when Morgan was locked up in the old magazine. But he declared that he was never supposed that Morgan was under any restraint, but that he went there of his own free will was anxious to get out of the state in some mysterious manner. What took place afterwards, he solemnly averred he knew not. A few months after he was ordered to appear before Governor Clinton at Albany, the show caused why he should be not be deposed from office for participating in the unlawful abduction of Morgan. Governor Clinton, after hearing the case, promptly removed him from office. He was soon after indicted, threatened, and in every possible way harassed and persecuted. In his trial purposely put off by Spencer until financially ruined, he had no means for the support of himself and family. In this condition, he was brought to trial. The indictment against him also included two correspondents, Erasmus Turner and Jared Darrow. Separate trials were demanded by the defendants, and the two later were never tried, and it does appear that there was does not appear that there was ever any evidence against them to connect them with the affair, except being personal friends of Bruce, and it was only known to the grand jury, the anti-Masonic committee, and the special attorney what object there was in coupling them with him in the presentment. Bruce's trial came off in the court of general sessions, Judge Howell presiding, 
at Canandaigua on the 20th day of August, 1828. The trial lasted some 10 days, and the jury brought him in guilty of conspiracy and abduction of William Morgan. His counsel took exceptions to the verdict of the jury and the ruling of the court on account of a merger of two crimes, which were not specifically set forth in the indictment. The case was therefore taken to the Supreme Court, and in the following May, that court decided that the facts of the case did not constitute a merger. The opinion of the court was given by Judge Savage, who said, quote, The offense of conspiracy is a distinct and separate offense, and not at all necessary to, or necessarily connected with, the false imprisonment shown by the evidence. The defendant, Bruce, might commit the offense of abduction or the imprisonment without having been guilty of conspiracy. The counsel claimed that the exceptions were not possibly properly certified to the Supreme Court. Otherwise, a different decision would have been made, but they made no further attempt to avoid the pronouncing of the sentence. On the 20th day of May, the court sentenced Bruce to be confined in the county jail at Canandaigua for the term of two years and four months. He remained in jail till September 20th, 1831. While in jail, Spencer attempted to suborn him to testify to a murder, offering to provide for his family and to loan him money on his own individual responsibility, and that he did not doubt that the executive would be induced from such a course at the instance of the anti-Masonic party to relieve him before the expiration of his time. But Bruce indignantly, indignantly rejected all offers to perjure himself perjure himself that he might thereby be personally benefited. While serving out his term also, he was taken to Lockport to testify on the trial of Ezekiel Jewett, but refused to be sworn, remarking that, quote, he had once consented to testify, but as he believed it had been of no service, he should decline, unquote. The court ordered him to be imprisoned 30 days in the Ontario County Jail after his present term had expired for contempt, but this order was never carried out. He was released at the expiration of his sentence as the judge remitted this order on account of the feeble condition of his health caused by the long confinement. Broken down in constitution from his long imprisonment, on being released, he returned to Lockport, where his family resided, and commenced the practice of medicine. But about one year thereafter, he was attacked with Asiatic cholera on its first visit to this country in 1832. He died on the 24th day of September, 1832, aged 39 years. On the trial of John Whitney and James L. Gillis, Bruce was called as a witness on the part of the defense when he testified as follows, quote, Eli Bruce, on the evening of the 13th of September, witness was first informed of Morgan's being on the Ridge Road. Two gentlemen came and gave him this information. One of them was, was Burridge Smith, the name of the other he declines mentioning. It was not John Whitney. Did not, till that time, know that Morgan had been taken to Canandaigua. Six or eight days before this time, a gentleman called on witness to go to Batavia and get Morgan away. He stated that there was difficulty between Morgan and Miller and that Morgan would go away willingly. Witness declined having anything to do with it. Erasmus Turner of Lockport called on witness about this time and requested him to, to fit up an apartment in the jail for Morgan's temporary reception and stated that Morgan would be there that night on his way to Canada. Witness saw Burridge Smith at the cottage inn in Lockport. There were no strangers with him. He did not know John Whitney at that time. The two gentlemen referred to requested witness to go to Wright's Tavern on the Ridge. They stated that Morgan was there on his way to Canada. Witness inquired if there was difficulty or trouble, stated that he was sheriff of the county and did not wish to get into a scrape. They assured him that Morgan had consented to go away, that he was to be put 
upon a farm in Canada. Witness went to Wright's where he found the carriage in which Morgan was conveyed. Witness says a man who was dead, Haig, and Morgan were the only persons who was rode in the carriage from Wright's to Lewiston. They changed horses at Lewiston and proceeded to the burying ground near Fort Niagara. They then crossed the ferry near the fort over to Canada. Morgan did not get out of the boat. The arrangements on the Canada side for Morgan's reception were not completed, and he was brought back. It was thought best to bring him back for a few days until the people on the other side were ready to receive him. They then went up to the fort and lodged Morgan in the magazine to await the preparations on the other side of the river. He was never he has never seen Morgan since he left him in the magazine. Does not know what was done with him. He left the fort before daylight. Hagen and Morgan conversed together. Morgan supposed he was going with friends and appeared perfectly easy. Some liquor was handed in to Morgan at Molino's tavern. He sat erect in the carriage and did not appear to be enfeebled. When they got out of the carriage, Morgan locked arms with the two gentlemen, Haig and the gentleman who got in at Youngstown, and walked towards the fort. Witness supposed that Morgan had consented to go off. There was no liquor in the carriage. <laughs>